This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralji-Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their works in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading, or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year, a fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise is offered for the second time. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2022, is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by Rachel Long's My Darling from the Lions, a collection of poems with vivid stories to tell, of family quirks, the perils of dating, the grip of religion, or sexual awakening. Stories that are, by turn, emotionally insightful, politically conscious, wise, funny, and outrageous. Says Morgan Parker, Rachel Long has miraculous command of the line, in all its trickery and grace and gasps, showcasing a truly refreshing voice with observant, deeply felt insight. Bernadine Evaristo adds, that Long's is an enchanting and heartwarming new voice in poetry. My Darling from the Lions is out now from Tin House. I've been looking forward to this day, the launch of this conversation with Miriam Chancy, partly because while she has long been a pivotal figure in Caribbean studies, and in particular the role of storytelling by women in Haitian literature, And while she has been a storyteller herself, a novelist, for many years now, it feels like with the launch of her new book that she herself is at a pivotal moment in that while you might not know the name Miriam Chancy now, as I say these words, I think that is about to change and in a big way. And we'll look back and marvel at this moment just before. Miriam really was generous with her contribution to the bonus audio archive. At Scripps College, she teaches courses on transnational feminist theory, Caribbean women writers, on James Baldwin, and on postcolonial theory and postcolonial anxieties. Her 20-minute contribution to the bonus archive is a bit of what I would imagine sitting in on a seminar of hers might feel like. She performs a close reading from Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place for Us, a book that she teaches, and here she alternates between short readings and then commentary and analysis, both of the Kincaid text in its own right, but also in relation to Haiti and the ways it has influenced the choices Chancy made in writing her latest novel, the novel that we discussed today. This joins bonus audio from Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang, 
Viet Thanh Nguyen, Teju Cole, and many others. And the bonus audio is only one of many possible benefits of becoming a listener supporter. Everyone who supports the show receives emails with each episode, pointing you to things referenced during the conversation and suggestions of where to explore next once you're done listening. And there are collectibles donated by past guests, among many other things. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Miriam Chancy. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Haitian-Canadian writer and scholar Miriam Chancy. Chancy received her bachelor's in English literature with a minor in philosophy from the University of Manitoba, a master's in English literature from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and her doctorate in English literature from the University of Iowa. Shansi is currently Hartley Burr Alexander Chair of Humanities at Scripps College and has previously held tenure-track positions in the English departments of Vanderbilt University, Arizona State University, Louisiana State University, and the University of Cincinnati. She's the author of many touchstone books of literary scholarship, including Framing Silence, Revolutionary Novels by Haitian Women, which is the first book-length study in English devoted to Haitian women's literature, and was thus instrumental in inaugurating Haitian women's studies as a contemporary field of specialization. It ended up as the first of an academic trilogy on Caribbean's women's literature that included Searching for Safe Spaces, one of the first books in Caribbean studies to argue for exile as a distinct feature of Anglophone Afro-Caribbean women's literature, a book that was awarded an Outstanding Academic Book Award from the Journal of the American Library Association. And the final book in the trilogy, From Sugar to Revolution, Women's Visions of Haiti, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic. Miriam Chancy is a Guggenheim Fellow, and as part of that fellowship, published the book Autochtonomies, Transnationalism, Testimony, and Transmission in the African Diaspora. Miriam Chancy is past editor-in-chief of Meridians, an interdisciplinary feminist journal, which provides a forum for both scholarship and creative work by and about women of color, and which engages the complexity of debates around feminism, race, and transnationalism, 
in a dialogue across ethnic, national, and disciplinary boundaries, and she has served on the editorial board of the Journal of Haitian Studies. As if that were not enough, Chancy is also a writer of fiction, the reason she is on Between the Covers today. Her first novel, Spirit of Haiti, was shortlisted for the best first book for the 2004 Commonwealth Prize in the Canada-Caribbean category. She followed this book with the novels The Scorpion's Claw and The Loneliness of Angels, the latter of which was the inaugural winner of the Guiana Prize in Literature Caribbean Award for Best Fiction in 2010, and which was also shortlisted for the 2011 OCOM Bocas Prize in Caribbean Literature. Miriam Chancy is here today to talk about her fourth novel, just out from Tin House Books, entitled What Storm, What Thunder, at which Dantica says of Chancy's latest, lending her voice to 10 survivors whose lives were indelibly altered by the January 12, 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Miriam Chancy's sublime choral novel not only describes what it was like for her characters before, during, and after that heart-rending day, she also powerfully guides us toward further reflection and healing, a striking and formidable novel by one of our most brilliant writers and storytellers. Jose Olivares says, Miriam Chancy is a masterful writer. The book is devastating and tender, but it is not a spectacle of sadness. It is a show of humanity and care in the midst of great violence. Publishers Weekly in its starred review describes what storm, what thunder as not to be missed. And Kirkus in its starred review says, in her searing new novel, Chancy, who spent years talking to survivors, sifts through the wreckage of this inconceivable calamity. She has shaped the stories of the living and the dead into a mighty fictional tapestry that reflects the terror, despair, and sorrow of the moment as she examines questions of Haitian identity in a world that doesn't seem to care. The stories are not always easy to read, but they shouldn't be. Chancy offers fleeting redemption for some characters, but she does not deal in false hopes. Quote, we all look away unless it's us or someone we love going up in flames, one character muses. In this devastating work, Chauncey refuses to let any of us look away. A devastating personal and vital account. Welcome to Between the Covers, Maryam Chauncey. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's, it's really an honor to be with you. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Um, so when the when the 2010 earthquake happened, you were receiving a lot of pressure by others to write an earthquake novel, mm-hmm. a novel you never planned on writing, despite the pressure. Um, and I, I, I wanted to start there with you talking to us perhaps about what happened that changed your mind and your heart about this, so that now here we are together today because of this novel that you originally had no intention of writing. Yeah, I mean, you know, 2010, this event was really shattering for myself and and many Haitians around the world and other people with ties to Haiti, to say nothing of the people who went through the earthquake itself uh, and have survived it. Um, 
so at the time, I because of a book you've mentioned, uh, Framing Silence, Haitian uh, Revolutionary Novels by Haitian Women, you know, I've, I was very well known as someone who spoke out on Haitian women's and children's issues. And so uh, I received a lot of requests to give talks about uh, the after effects of the earthquake. And, and of course, because I was outside of Haiti at the time, it seemed like one of the few things that I could offer, right, to uh, give talks uh, when I could. Sometimes they were polemical, especially as, you know, the months went by and it was clear that aid was not uh, being distributed in ways that were the best for people on the ground or that Haitian voices were not being heard. So it was a way for me, both as a scholar, as an academic, and as an educator, to use my voice to sort of amplify what I was hearing and learning about what was happening on the crown from direct sources, but also from news reports and so forth. And so um, at the same time, the last novel, Loneliness of Angels, which came out of the UK, appeared uh, about a month after the earthquake. And that novel was written in response to um, a hurricane in 2004. And so it came out in 2010, but it was, you know, talking about uh, the effects of that hurricane. And so there was a lot of language in that novel that invoked uh, the kinds of metaphors that we think about when we think about earthquakes. And, and of course, that was completely accidental. Mm. Um, but since I was also asked to take part in readings and fundraisers for the earthquake, I was reading from the novel. And some people would come to me and say, oh, well, then your next novel should be on the earthquake or you know, um, framed in a kind of, well, it's a moment to take advantage of. And I found that really not only distasteful, but um, really just for me, a strange response because mm -hmm. in the weeks after the earthquake, you know, I was waiting for weeks to find out who in my family had survived or perished, uh, friends as well, colleagues as well. So what happened at the time is that it, it wouldn't even have crossed my mind in a moment where I felt I was in crisis and so many of us were in crisis to even think of beginning yet a new novel and to have it be on, on this particular topic. Uh, and so um, I just, you know, let those comments kind of slide by and, and, and discarded them, disregarded them. And, uh, but I went on to give talks and to participate in different efforts on the ground for probably three years after the earthquake. And I still, you know, really didn't think about writing anything about the earthquake aside from all of the essays that I had been writing. Uh, and at some point I was invited to be a writer in residence in Trinidad, which has, I discovered a long history with Haiti in terms of independence movements, especially in the seventies movement, seventies revolution as it's called there. Uh, and I met some of the actors, the older actors of that period, uh, a, a playwright, uh, some writers. And one of, of my connections there uh, had me meet the following year. So I was writer in residence in 2012, at which time I was asked by Suniti Maharaj to write a series of essays on Haiti for Trinidadians, um, for people who didn't understand what had happened or why it should matter to them in the Caribbean. Um, and then I returned an, another year later. And at that time I was introduced to the painter Leroy Clark, who was also part of the 70s revolution and is probably the best known uh, painter 
that uh, Trinidad has produced, who just passed away, uh, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I wish I had been able to share the novel with him. I didn't have that, that opportunity. And at the time that I met him, he was working on a series uh, responding as a Trinidadian to, to Haiti, to what was happening in Haiti. And what I learned is that he had started this series in 1986, which was the end of the Duvalier regime. So he had started a, a very large form painting and he had stopped it. And then after the earthquake, he finished the painting. So this is a painting that's now, you know, over uh, 20 years old. And he had started just painting through the night, you know, for weeks on end. Um, and when I was there visiting him, he had 77 paintings and he went on to paint, I think 111, something around that number. And he had never been to Haiti, had never talked to a Haitian painter, had never studied Haitian painting. And many of the paintings were things that I could really understand without talking to him about them. And he was struck by the fact because he just had uh, in his studio, you know, someone put out all the paintings for me to look at. And I was just moved to tears. I mean, literally moved to tears. And that led to a conversation about process. And the process uh, that he had engaged in was a spiritual one, you know, listening to what he felt were the cries coming out from Haiti. And that led, and so we had a conversation about it. And that led me to think about, you know, all these years that I had been spending giving talks, conversations I'd had after those talks with people who had been through the earthquake or who had family involved in the earthquake. Uh, and it, it made me think about why had so many people invested this extra emotional energy to have those conversations with me. And I realized at that point, after seeing the paintings in Clark's studio, that that investment was coming out of a realization that my function, whether you call it an, uh, an avocation or a spiritual function, uh, was as a writer to be a spokesperson or a witness, <clears throat> excuse me, for other people. And so um, after a couple of weeks of returning from Trinidad uh, that second time, I just sat down and reflected on that experience and the, the I would say the skeleton for the novel just emerged. Mm. You know, the, 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 the characters, who they were, their ages, um, you know, where they had been at the, at the time of the earthquake just started, just started pouring out. And, and I started with a little boy's voice, uh, Jonas, who's 11 years old at the time of the earthquake. And, and it went from there. And I, and I think part of what changed in terms of my conviction that I, that I should write the novel or could write it was one, that reflection on why I had so many people commiserated with me after those talks, but also um, that there was no rush in doing so, right? Uh, that I wasn't just, as people were saying to me in those first weeks, ah, you should rush to do something, that, that writing as a witness is not about rushing to an end goal, it's about taking that charge really seriously. Um, and I think I also took it seriously in terms of speaking on behalf of, of the dead, because so many people died in that earthquake. I, you know, now people are seeing 300,000 at the time, 250,000, um, and wanting to, to give voice to those experiences as well. Yeah. So, so the, the new novel, the one we're talking about, What Storm, What Thunder, it's mainly set just before it and just after the the earthquake, which 
as you mentioned, in a mere 45 seconds killed up to 300,000 people and made a million and a half people homeless. And it did this not because it was a much bigger earthquake than the one that Haiti experienced this year, an earthquake this year that was actually slightly bigger, I think, than the one in 2010, but because of where the epicenter was in a much more population-dense part of the island. You, you tell the story from 10 points of view, in a sense repeating the weeks before and the weeks after, but from different vantage points. And I wanted to ask you about this choice, um, both as a writer of fiction, but also as a literary scholar, because... Mm-hmm. What's so fascinating about talking to you, I think, is your academic work itself looks at the role of storytelling for Haitians. It looks at writing against monolithic colonial narratives told against Haiti, but also as a means for Haitian women to disrupt Haitian male writers' stranglehold on the Haitian narrative as well. So, for instance, in in Framing Silence, you argue that Haitian women writers not only don't rely on a unified understanding of Haitian culture to create their narratives, but they redefine the understanding of Haiti. So my question of why write this novel as a polyvocal chorus of perspectives is both for you as a storyteller and you as a scholar of storytelling. What about the choice appeals to you as a writer of fiction and what, if any, philosophical or sociopolitical implications does this choice have? <laughs> That's a very big question. <laughs> uh, let me give you the academic answer first. Uh, and you know, if I put on my professorial hat, I think, I think the first answer would be that it's not unusual for a Caribbean writer uh, maybe less so for a Haitian writer, but, necess- but for a Caribbean writer uh, to write in a polyvocal manner. It's, it's not unusual. Um, it, it's, it's even more prominent, I think, in the Anglophone Caribbean than it is in the, in the I wouldn't say Francophone Caribbean, but for, for the Haitian writers that I follow, it's, it's more, I think, more recent that that polyvocality has, has ingrained itself. Um, but... And so, and the idea being that polyvocality is very much central to the cultures of the Caribbean, as it is uh, many cultures, I would say non-European cultures, um, that, you know, the, the artwork needs to speak in a more, in a wider way, where it doesn't centralize the story in a, in a central character, uh, but in multiple locales, you know, in order to give a sense of a whole picture of a collective. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm being consistent with, with tradition. Um, in terms of my particular choice with this novel, and, and I have done this in all of my novels, so this is not new to me. Um, I think in, in, you know, something I'm working on now, I'm going to reduce the number of voices. Uh, but for this particular novel, the initial impetus was, was that I was trying to figure out how can I speak in some way for, you know, those 250,000 departed people, um, even though in the novel a number of people are survivors, but how can I speak to those who will never have their story told, just, you know, whole families wiped out and so forth. Um, and initially, my idea was that 
because on the ground, many people call the earthquake dues 12 for the day of the earthquake, but I should have 12 main characters. And even though there are 10 voices in the novel, there are actually still 12 uh, main characters, although the, the remaining two are perhaps less distinct to the reader uh, because they're no, they used to have full sections and, and uh, in the final version, they, they, they were left on the cutting room floor. Um, but the idea was then, well, how do you, how can you encompass the whole of this experience of the earthquake in, in 12 people so that in that symbolic order or, or number? And then the idea even whittled down to 10, I still was holding on to this same idea. How can we have, uh, give a sense of a wider whole through these multiple voices? Because when you think about it, that's actually not a lot of voices if you're trying to speak for, you know, 300,000 departed and then 1.5 million people who are, uh, you know, homeless. I mean, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, so there's that. And I don't think having one voice, one central narrative would have given justice to that wider, wider number, right? That, that uh, sort of astronomical numbers. Um, and then the other reason I did so is because in my experience, you know, you know, those three years where I did the work, uh, you know, month in and month out, uh, you know, with, with, you know, speaking about Haiti, connecting people and so forth, and also just talking to members of my family, to people on, you know, on the ground, as I say, um, the reactions post-earthquake to what had happened were so varied in ways that, uh, you know, were sometimes difficult to piece together. And I wanted the novel to reflect that kind of wide range of responses. Because when a cataclysm occurs anywhere, and, and we're now in the midst of so many things happening, you know, the earthquake in, uh, in Haiti just this month, uh, you know, was happening in Afghanistan, the storms, uh, you know, in Louisiana and, and elsewhere. And so every time we see these large event, events take place on our, on our television screens, or you know, for many people on their laptops and so forth, there's a way in which we can sort of reduce those experiences to masses, right? Uh, people in Afghanistan are feeling this way, or people in Louisiana demand this. You know, we we talk in these very large uh, scopes about what a group of people or mass of people are going through, but the fact, even though that is also an element of you know disasters, another part of it is that people are having their individual experiences of those disasters in the midst of them. And people will not have a uniform response to those, to those disasters. And so I wanted to somehow reflect as best I could the wide range of responses. Um, some, you know, and I had to think about how to relate that in the novel. And, I, and one of the ways I found through the political vocality was also to have three different family groups reflected so that within even within the family groups you see that the experience of the earthquake or response to it is not the same even with people who know each other very intimately mm. well it seems like this this impulse to complicate or resist unifying narratives like you say you you've your novels before this are also polyvocal and i'm thinking about loneliness of angels and the way you engage with the Syrian Jewish and Irish 
presence on on the island um just to, as as another example of, of of complicating what it would mean to be haitian and what haitian identity is made of um but as you mentioned with these three these three families in the latest book one of the ways the book coheres is that these 10 characters or 12 characters are some of them related by blood right and so uh, someone who's narrating one chapter may be a character in an, in a following chapter. So there is there, and some of them are united m- more by circumstance, whether it's the earthquake or otherwise. Um, but there is a definitely a sense of um, interbreeding and layering happening between the ten voices. They're not disparate voices. But the market woman that the book opens with, Malu, um, she seems to serve at least for me, a larger role in the book than the others. Yes. She feels like the connective tissue that holds the book together, the matriarch not only of of her family, but it, it feels almost like she's the matriarch of the book. So I was, I was hoping you could introduce us to her as a character. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you say that, actually. Uh, so Malu is a market woman in her 70s. Uh, so she's she's the oldest character in the novel. So she's seen a great deal in Haiti. Uh, she understands a great deal about social relations. Uh, she's alienated from her son, uh, who she put in a boarding school after his father passed away, her husband passed away. And 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 he's gone on to become, uh, you know, a water magnate uh, in France and has basically turned his back on Haiti uh, and he's also turned his back on on a on a child that he left behind uh, from his adolescent years that she is aware of and is in touch with, who also makes an appearance in the novel. Um, and so, when I when I found Malou or found her voice or her voice came to me, um, I really felt because going back to those talks I was giving after the earthquake. One of my talks was called Hearing Our Grandmother Speak. And it was a response to a number of people who were saying that um, the earthquake had not been born across classes. Um, and there's some truth to that and, and, and also some untruth to that in the sense that obviously those who were more insecure in their housing uh, had a bigger, you know, uh, weight to bear in terms of of loss of life and and loss of housing and so forth. Um, But uh, others, you know, in other classes also uh, bore losses, you know, a a natural disaster doesn't discriminate uh, as to whom it will it will hit. Um, And as someone who is on the outside of Haiti, uh, who, you know, is a, a middle class status, one could say, one of the things that um, one of the things that I that I carry with me is a very complicated family history, and so on my grandmother's side, uh, on my mother's side, excuse me, my uh, mother's grandmother, so my great grandmother was a market woman, and uh, a market woman who did well enough that she was able to have a, a, a covered stall in the Marché de Fer which was destroyed in the earthquake, but, but rebuilt, I think a couple of years later, um, and was able to employ other women. 
and and you know put a roof over her head her her and she was unmarried uh, or widowed over her child's head and and my 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 mother and her siblings and so I wanted to kind of uh, bear witness or give her a kind of homage you know for the kind of things that that she was able to accomplish in her life um, that often people will not will disregard and so when I wrote hearing our grandmother speak I was uh, in that talk, I was talking about the ways in which market women serve as kind of emblematic metaphors for Haiti. So at the time, there were lots of images of uh, market women walking through the debris in Port-au-Prince, for example, uh, sort of kind of a noble figure, you know, continuing her work no matter what. But nobody would speak about, well, what does it mean to have to withstand the earthquake no matter what, you know, what does it mean to be a Haitian woman in that aftermath, uh, having very little, you know, or or being someone who has to get up at three in the morning and work until, you know, the end of the day and so forth. And one of the things I conjectured at the time was that, you know, in the period of reconstruction, when, you know, and this was at the beginning of a period of reconstruction, people would ask, you know, who should we speak to? How do we approach reconstruction? And I would say, why not begin with the market women? Why not talk to those women? Because they are, as we all always tend to say, the backbone of a culture. But when it comes to politics, when it comes to economic strategies, we leave them completely out of a conversation. And these are women who, if you, are, if you ever find yourself in a Haitian marketplace, can explain to you global economics very, very clearly, you know, as well as a, as a professor of economics. And so in Malu, I wanted to encapsulate, you know, that knowledge, that awareness. Um, and also the, I also wanted to reflect the space that market women occupy, not just as a kind of ennobling figure, but that figure that knows everything because everything goes through the marketplace. All social classes go through the marketplace. Children, you know, adults, you know, teenagers, everyone goes there. Um, it's also where a lot of information gets traded because people often disregard market women with even within the culture so that they'll talk openly about things that, you know, one shouldn't talk openly about in front of the market women. Mm. And so I thought, well, here is a way of honoring market women, but not just for this kind of empty, you know, vessel of fortitude, but as someone who is highly conscious of her social role, uh, of the society in which she resides, and who also can provide um, a kind of, I don't, know, I don't know how I would say it, but a kind of uh, critique of the society while also providing answers. And so you don't find Malu you know, giving you those political kinds of answers, but you find in her reflections and in her actions, a kind of response to what is happening in Haiti at this time that should inform the reader about those things that could have happened, did not happen, or that individuals took upon themselves to fulfill. So for example, in her, you know, the rescue of the bones of her ancestors from uh, um, a cemetery, uh, a real cemetery uh, that, was, that was closed or paved over after the earthquake. Um, so she finds ways of maneuvering through grief and finding ways of uh, reconnecting to those family members that she, that she still has. 
uh, in ways that I think reflect, you know, the, some of the larger issues at hand. Could could we hear the opening to the book in in her voice? Malu, Ezilio msanzo e, Ezili msanzo, msanzo lan tout comme, Ezilio msanzo e, msanzo lan tout comme, Ezilio msanzo. Oh, Ezili, hey, I have no bones. Ezili, I have no bones. I have no bones in my entire body. Oh, Ezili, hey, I have no bones. I have no bones in my entire body. Oh, Ezili, I have no bones. Vodou traditional for Gran Ezili. Paro Prince, November 25th, 2014. Oh, 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 yeah, Mama Mwen. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, encore. My old mama used to say these words when she grew too old to draw water from her own well. I remember. When I made my way back to see her in her last days, standing in the tap-tap truck for long hours as we traveled the serpentine road leading out of the capital to the villages of the coast, all the way to Saint-Marc where I was born and my mother was born and her mother before her, I was troubled to see her diminished frame in her bed. I could see her bones through the frail wrinkled skin that lay limply across them. I could see the bones, but still she moaned to the goddess plaintively, I have no bones, I have no bones. Now that I'm old like her, I understand the moaning of her last hours. Yes, mama, you had no bones and I did not understand you, I did not understand. She complained of cold during the hot days and of heat in the coldness of night. I rubbed a cloth dipped in river water over her flaccid skin, slowly, slowly, in circular motions to warm her, to cool her. She sighed as I did this, sighed for the temporary relief without a sense of hope, as a soldier of war would after being shot, waiting in the trenches to be found by enemy or kin, hoping not to be found by an enemy. At night, I lay beside her and put my arms around her two blankets covering us. She shivered in the night even when it was still hot. She died July 15, the day that the devotees climbed the waterfalls in Sodo, seeking penance for Maitresse Blo, seeking healing and renewal. No bones, she said, her eyes wide open looking through me, no bones. But in the end, all that remained was skin and bones. When she died, the wick of light in her eyes flickered, then disappeared. A lifetime of misery extinguished very slowly, just a heap of bones. A month ago, the dictator's son died. I wondered who mourned his lifeless body, what the gods had to say. Whether his passing meant that we would be delivered of whatever curse his father, the God of death, had set upon us. Thinking about it, I realized that he was a man like other men, a heap of bones like my mother. I thought about going to Sodo for a long time after Duz to bury my mother's bones. I had never been, but had always wanted to go. I thought about the stories that my husband, Lou, told me about the place. He went there just before we met on the feast day in July, 
He asked the gods to bring him to someone like me, not someone, he corrected himself, you, a soulmate, you, he said emphatically. Lou was a vaudouisant all his days, made altars, offerings, participated in the feast days. I watched him without saying anything. I was a Catholic and that was that. We never discussed our difference. Had he been here after what happened, happened, he would have danced with the mourners. I would have watched him. Lou's memories were my own. That's why it didn't bother me that once we were married, everyone took to calling me Malou, echoing my constant references to him in my speech. My Lou, my Lou, I always said, as I still do, as if everything he told me were sacred and true, I wanted to believe that this was so. Everyone still calls me by his name, though Lou is long gone. After what happened happened, it seemed to me that then it would be best to believe in gods that had not harmed me, Lou's gods, my mother's gods. Being sent to Catholic school early on severed me from them, even if I was only to become a market woman. At least I could read, count, and pray the catechism. I thought this made me lucky, but in other ways, it made me poor, like a pocket turned inside out, empty of coins. Been listening to Marianne Chancy read from her latest book from Tin House, What Storm, What Thunder. So in, in talks you've given in the past, you, you've talked about how you usually include Haitian spirituality and rituals in your novels, but you rarely you rarely name them explicitly as voodoo because of how freighted and caricatured the word is, particularly in the white imaginary. Knowing this, it seemed Noteworthy to me that this book, in contrast, opens with a voodoo invocation on the epigraph page, and then a voodoo traditional song to open Malu's chapter. And there, it feels like there's a constant presence of it going forward. We know that Malu is a Catholic, but her husband and her mother both practice voodoo. Um, in the chapter with Sarah, there's a ritual to conjure the ghosts of dead children, in Sonia's chapter, she sees the god of death just before the earthquake. Richard or Richard, in his chapter, we learn that as a kid that he dreamed of being a sukuyon, a shapeshifter from, I know that's not necessarily voodoo, but from Caribbean folklore. Mm-hmm. And, and Didier, who is Christian, is visited by the spirit of his father. And not all of these, I think, fall under the the category of voodoo necessarily. But, but I'm wondering if you could maybe just unpack in more detail why you've avoided the term Mm -hmm. um, while still exploring the content and why in a way you've, it seems like you're foregrounding it from, from page one in what storm, what thunder. That's a great question because um, until you ask the question right now, I, I don't think it was a conscious shift for me. Uh, It felt very organic in the writing to place the voodoo or to be very explicit about the voodoo presence for these particular characters. Uh, but of course, uh, from a critical point of view, you know, when I look back on my work, it's a, it was a very deliberate decision, or at least it was a very deliberate decision until now to mask the voodoo because of uh, the kinds of negative uh, ways in which voodoo has been stereotyped and, and you know, represented 
especially in, as you were saying, in the American imagination. Um, I mean, you know, for those listeners who don't know, this is where we get the concept of a zombie, which is so popular now, for example. Um, and so, and the other aspect of this is that after the earthquake, um, one of the, which has happened again this month after 814, um, there has been a great deal of, of talk about the idea that Haiti, and I, and I hate to repeat the phrase, but I will, is a cursed nation. And that the curse goes back to Vodou. You know, had Vodou not played a integral part in the founding of a nation, you know, going back to Boacayman, and it is not lost on many Haitians that the latest earthquake took place on the anniversary of the Boacayman gathering of the 1700s. Um, so that some people have distorted this history to say, well, look, this must be the reason calamities keep happening to Haiti. And my response to that is that, and I think there might be a different weaving going on in What Storm, What Thunder, which is that there is an implicit critique of Christian uh, impositions on the island. And, and by that, I mean colonial impositions, uh, whether by the Catholic church or by other Christian entities, including missionaries that have uh, not necessarily with the best uh, intent you know, impose themselves in ways that have been, that have uh, diminished uh, Haitians' capacity, not only for their own, you know, to fulfill their spirituality, but to grow as a nation. So I guess in a sense, what I did here was a reversal, which was to critique and invoke Christianity as something that has, uh, you know, beleaguered Haitian society. And found ways to reveal the ways in which voodoo has enabled the, con the continuance of Haitian culture and possibility. For listeners who might not know of the of that touchstone gathering in the 1700s, could could you just speak for a moment on on what you are referencing? Yeah, so uh, the Haitian Revolution is normally dated back to 1791. Uh, and uh, the Boacayma gathering, um, it might be a few years earlier, I have to check the actual dates for Boacayma, but it took place on August 14th. And Boacayma was a, a gathering uh, that took place in a, in, a, in a clearing where enslaved Africans and their allies uh, came together, held from all accounts a voodoo ceremony to open up a space in which they could talk and organize uh, and be on the same page about how they would uh, enact this revolution against uh, you know, French colonists and plantation owners uh, to free themselves of slavery and in freeing themselves of slavery to also create a new society that interestingly, I don't know if a lot of people know this, uh, but it, this was enshrined in the 1805 constitution uh, drafted by Dessalines, uh, in which every citizen of Haiti would consider themselves Black, uh, regardless of, of ethnicity. Um, and so there were people who took part in the revolution who were mixed race and uh, free people of color. There were whites 
who abandoned their plantations and joined, you know, instead of fleeing to nearby places like Louisiana, Cuba, uh, Guadeloupe, even Trinidad, uh, decided that they would join, you know, this revolution. There were Poles who had been conscripted in the French army, who, because they were not treated well uh, by the French, uh, decided to take the side of the revolutionaries. And uh, they joined together in a, a massive revolution, which uh, took, you know, nearly a decade to, a little more than a decade to accomplish. Uh, but it is the only nation in the Americas that achieved its independence, you know, within uh, slave systems uh, without an emancipation. Um, so, so that voodoo ceremony was pivotal in bringing everyone together and, you know, unifying people under an African concept of, of the collective, which is part of, of voodoo society. Uh, and I think what I would also add is that one of the problems in how, uh, you know, popular notions of, of Haiti ha have continued to pro proliferate in the negative outside of Haiti, but even sometimes within, um, is that we don't in uh, Creole and, and even in French have different uh, sign systems uh, for the broad terms that are utilized to talk about uh, healing modalities and spiritualities as opposed to those that uh, people would associate, you know, in the United States, for example, with quote unquote black magic, uh, what's called hoodoo, for example, in, in Louisiana. So, so we call voodoo, you know, both of those modalities. But if you're a, a priest or priestess working in the healing modality, you're a hougan or a mambo. Hougan is the male, mambo is, is the female. Uh, whereas if you were working in the, in the quote-unquote dark arts, you would be a bokal. So there are these distinctions that get lost in, in translation. Um, and so a lot of people don't realize that voodoo, you know, could be, you know, you could think about it as, uh, as you know, some more recent writings have, have been unearthing. For example, uh, Mimrose Beaubois' Uh, she's the lead singer of, of Bookman Experience, a Racine group. Um, they're probably one of the most popular roots music groups in Haiti. Uh, she she's also an anthropologist. She wrote a, a book called Nandomi in the Sleep, uh, which is available and translated into English, where she talks about uh, through uh, interviews with Mambos, all of whom passed away after she interviewed them. They were in their 70s and 80s. Um, talks about the ways in which uh, voodoo is about healing, healing the self, healing the collective, you know, and so the comparative, I think Madison Smart Bell wrote the foreword to this book, he talks about how the modalities are very similar to Buddhism and Taoism, uh, but people have not taken the time to understand the similarity in those concepts. Also, it's interesting that you brought up notions of, of Blackness uh, skin color and race, because we have the character Didier, who's in Boston, taxi driver, who's perplexed by American notions of whiteness, which do not seem to um, track well with his own notions of race from growing up in Haiti. And so there are ways in which it feels like this book also addresses questions of colorism and, and racism and the ways that they diverge between Haiti and and the United States and other places. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I, th I think DJ is a good example. And, and this uh, came up sometimes in the editorial process because I made the deliberate choice in DJ's section to, uh, you know, to not capitalize the word black. And I kept having to, ex to explain uh, that DJ doesn't have a concept of black uh, as a chosen category against oppression. Yeah. Um, you know, his understanding of, of black would be uh, different from that and he doesn't understand it in terms of, of skin color um so i so that's why i deliberately made it uh you know uh, not a not a uh now i'm thinking in french excuse me <laughs> not a majuscule i forgot the word in english um yeah so i didn't i don't know yeah i lowercased black uh because he he just sees it as a color because that's what he's learning in america that this word means and then he learns that it means that he's less than, which is not a concept he understood. And, and of course, this is not to say that there isn't colorism in Haiti and class distinction. Of course, there is. Um, but it's to say that, there, that it's unlikely uh, that you would have a Haitian, you know, somebody who's born in Haiti and, and raised there, thinking of themselves as not Black, you know, so it, but for completely different reasons. Uh, you know, and I mean that in the sense that if they're upper class and they're white appearing and so forth. Um, so it's much more complicated. So Didier was a, a good uh, vehicle for me because of his introduction to race in America through Boston and racism to really understand how different America was than, from the dream that he had imagined when he emigrated. Well, I want to spend some more time with this notion of Haiti as a cursed nation mm -hmm. and the ways the bias against voodoo is tied into a larger bias against Haiti. Um, I'm going to read something by the New York times op-ed columnist, David Brooks, who mm -hmm. I think has made a long career of terrible takes on a number of issues, but, okay. but I want to read it not because I think this is unique to him, but because I think he's saying something that is emblematic of a certain way Haiti gets positioned that is anything but unique to him. Mm -hmm. For instance, when Senator Biden was asked in 1994 if Congress would give Clinton authority to invade Haiti, mm -hmm. Biden said, if Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, it wouldn't matter a whole lot in terms of our interest. Mm. But uh, returning to Brooks, this is what he once wrote um, shortly after the earthquake of 2010. It is time to put the thorny issue of culture at the center of efforts to tackle global poverty. Why is Haiti so poor? Well, it has a history of oppression, slavery, and colonialism, but so does Barbados, and Barbados is doing pretty well. Haiti has endured ruthless dictators, corruption, and foreign invasions, but so has the Dominican Republic, and the DR is in much better shape. Haiti and the Dominican Republic share the same island and the same basic environment, yet the border between the two societies offers one of the starkest contrasts on earth, with trees and progress on one side and deforestation and poverty and early death on the other. As Lawrence E. Harrison explained in his book, The Central Liberal Truth, Haiti, like most of the world's poorest nations, suffers from a complex web of progress-resistant cultural influences. 
there is the influence of the voodoo religion, which spreads the message that life is capricious and planning futile. There are high levels of social mistrust. Responsibility is often not internalized. Child-rearing practices often involve neglect in the early years and harsh retribution when kids hit 9 or 10. But this viewpoint of David Brooks in the New York Times isn't something just shared by white pundits. I listened to a talk that you gave called Submission or Omission, Haiti's Challenge in Latin America, where you look at how Haiti is is omitted from the larger Latin American discourse, that Haiti being the most Africanized country and also being particularly mired in poverty are conflated and viewed as related, that the Western Hemisphere's most iconic revolution is seen as failed and squandered, not because it was punished for its success, but because of its blackness. And on a more personal level, you shared that you're a quarter Dominican, and and for instance, when you're in the Dominican Republic, people are perplexed that you identify as Haitian because of why why would someone identify this way if they could avoid it. So I, I was hoping you could talk about this hyper-polarized view of Haiti, where on the one hand, people like Brooks and many others single it out as a culture of failure and connect this to its blackness. And they, on the other hand, it being the first black republic in the Western Hemisphere and only the second republic in the Western Hemisphere, a successful slave-led revolution that inspired everyone from Zora Neale Hurston to Langston Hughes to James Baldwin, who all visited. Um, I know this is a big question, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, and some, but also one you've, answering that question. <laughs> yeah, also one you've thought very deeply about. Did Baldwin go to Haiti? I didn't know that. I don't actually, I'm not hundred percent sure. Baldwin. I know during the occupation, uh, American occupation of Haiti that, Hurston and Houston and, and Houston. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so let me begin with my own heritage. Um, so I'm, as I say, I'm a quarter Dominican, but it's important to state that my Dominican grandfather was Haitian in the sense that he was a Haitian of Dominican descent. So when I look back at that history and I have the family tree from that branch of my family, uh, it starts with a Haitian woman who crosses the border and then returns to Haiti. And, you know, so that the Dominican branch is actually also Haitian. And so one of the things that I was always aware of growing up, and, and I wrote about this in, in, in one of my academic books from Sugar Revolution, is that Haiti was not always as impoverished as people make out to be today. There was a time when it was Dominicans who traveled to Haiti to seek better fortunes, especially if they were working to middle class. Um, and so, you know, this myth that it was always Haitians who, who migrated and who, you know, sought to better themselves in the DR, certainly not true in ma my family uh, and was not true for, for a long period. Um, even when we go back to the period of Trujillo, right, and the massacre of 1937, uh, where I think approximately 30,000 or so uh, Haitians and dark-skinned Dominicans were killed in the border zone. Um, that was, 
you know, I've written quite a, a, a lot about this, uh, but the historical record shows that this was part of a movement of de-Haitianizing, but really de-blackening, right? It was called the Blanqueamiento movement to whiten the nation and to stigmatize people who were dark-skinned. And since Haitians were of darker skin, uh, to, to make darkness and Haitianness synonymous. And then that gets conflated uh, with voodoo. But, but, you know, make no mistake about it, Trujillo was also targeting dark-skinned Dominicans, which is why so many Dominicans, you know, as you were saying, quoting from, from something I'd said uh, at another point, uh, because I appear, you know, more like a Dominican to many than uh, someone who is Haitian, um, are surprised because I, I guess I'm an in-between tone that I would identify as Haitian. Um, so, so having said that, um, I'll just say one more thing about 1937. You know, most Haitians who were working in the cane field industry at that time returned to Haiti after what was called the Zafra, the cane cutting period. And the reason they did so was because they were land owning Haitians and they were land owning peasants because going all the way back to the revolution, the revolution had seen to it that land, plantation land, had been redistributed to those who worked the land as enslaved people. And of course, there were no deeds. Uh, so over time, you know, this, this reality uh, became, you know, was stripped away from, the, from, mo from poor landowning Haitians. But this is just to say that uh, Haitians had uh, a place they called home and that migration was not an endpoint. It was simply seasonal, right? So a lot of this has been forgotten. Um, so as I climb back into, you know, your, the, the long quotes there, um, I think the Brooks op-ed is, is shocking, but it's, it's not only shocking for the kinds of stereotypes that it repeats about Haiti, but because I'm, I have to assume, I don't, I don't read Brooks, but I have to assume that this is a uh, well-educated middle to upper class American who thinks that they are well-read and, and uh, urbane, right? So here's the problem. I mean, we could, I could go through, I'll just go through a few of the, of the misconceptions. I won't go through all of them. Uh, but a few of the misconceptions, uh, I find it interesting, this comparison to other, to other islands, right? Oh, well, Barbados uh, has, is, is poor or has been, you know, or they occupy the same island as the Dominican Republic, one side is deforested, the other not. Well, you know, I remember as a teenager, uh, as an undergrad at University of Manitoba, uh, going to a, a film session to see a film about uh, deforestation of Haiti. A film, by the way, which I've been unable to find uh, since. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen little references to, to it here or there, but the deforestation of Haiti actually begins under the colonial period and continues through to, um, the modern period through lumber companies, especially Canadian lumber companies. And this is why the film at the time, being at the time in Canada was so interesting to me because I didn't know that history. And so I, you know, often peasants are blamed today for cutting trees and making uh, charcoal, you know, to, to heat their, their dwellings because of the lack of running electricity and so forth. Um, but, Cutting down trees and and you know for small dwellings uh, is would never 
have created the level of deforestation that you see in Haiti. It had to come from somewhere else. And I find it striking that there wouldn't be a conversation or thinking through of how did Haiti become deforested? Well, it had ebony wood, it had very prized woods that the French took, uh, that you know, Canadians took later on and, and, and did not replant because that was not part of the colonial method. Um, why did this not take place in the D Dominican Republic? Because in the Dominican Republic, you had a different uh, historical, you know, Spanish colonization uh, where, and, and you did not have a revolution, uh, which means that the two countries developed in a different kind of way. And maybe I can give a shorthand in terms of, of poverty, for example. So I'm, I'm just shifting gears a little bit here to get to the issue of the indemnity you know, that France forced Haiti to repay over several decades into the 20th, I think into the early 20th century, um, which I think in the 90s, so I'm sure that it, the number is, is higher now, into the, into the early 2000s, excuse me, under the, the term of, uh, the second term of Aristide, was estimated to be the equivalent of $21 billion, right? $21 billion at the, you know, turn of the 19th to 20th century. So one can imagine that if the country had been able to keep those $21 billion, which they had to pay, which is, which is unknown in, in, in history, they had to pay to the losers of the, of the war in order to have access to global trade. That was the deal that the French made. The French also lost a third of the present day US territory as a result of this revolution. And, and my students are always shocked when I show them the map of the Louisiana Purchase, because they thought that the Louisiana Purchase, they all, often think, is just Louisiana, you know, which is a smaller state. Right. I mean, when I show them that huge swath of land, which is a third of United of present-day U.S., they're like, oh my God, okay. Yeah. And so one of the arguments I make, which is not popular, is that we could argue that Haiti is actually the first republic in the Americas, not just the first Black republic, because the United States does not get constituted as the United States we know now until that purchase um, goes through and you know all the processes we go through to become nations. Um, so the indemnity begins the, the, the impoverishment of a nation. And well, well <laughs> I let feel me, at a loss. Go ahead. Then I spent so much time on my own, just out of my own interest sort of, learning more about the indemnity. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to reiterate some of what you said and maybe just add some other things and you correct me if I'm wrong too because okay. it just feels so vital to this question and this stigma seems so relevant to how the world responds to anything that happens in Haiti whether it be the recent assassination, the recent earthquake or the one in 2010. Right. If we think of um the David Brooks op-ed is just coming out and being generally received well um and the, how that affects the way the world is is treating haiti today isn't it too, isn't it easy to i mean i'm just listening to what you're saying but isn't it it's too facile i think to 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 be able to see what's happening in haiti and to immediately say ah well look at how poor these people are and look at how they've mismanaged their country I would imagine that it should strike people that that's too facile. 
You would, I would hope so, but I'm, I don't know that I, uh, I think that it is. That's the scary part. And I wanted to ask you about that, it's, it, but it's sort of like a long prelude into asking you about, mm-hmm. um, ignorance, um, in my own engagement with this, this question of the indemnity, uh, I learned that Haiti was, was one of the richest European colonies going into the 1800s. That's right. And that after its successful revolution was isolated because of all of the, because all of the slaveholding Caribbean around it didn't want the successful revolt to spread, mm-hmm. but it was also particularly economically isolated isolated by the United States, Thomas Jefferson was fearful of slave revolts That's right. and referred to Haiti or Haitians as cannibals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most mind-blowing thing is what you've referenced, which is the French, who send a naval fleet to the newfound nation and under the threat of invasion of a country that doesn't itself have a navy, demands reparations for lost property. And that lost property in the French minds, it includes human beings Mm -hmm. and thus they're asking the victors to pay reparations for asserting their humanity. The Mm -hmm. first and only time a formerly enslaved people were forced to compensate those who had once enslaved them. Right. Right. So, um, so I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware that they sent a fleet because my understanding of, of the revolution is that they decimated that that fleet oh really which is of, i think that's my understanding. what i what i had heard and i think i again i would defer to your knowledge is that it was years it was a couple years later mm-hmm. that they sent they sent boats um but um that's, that's possible but yeah. but i but i guess i'd i'd like to leave people with with the memory of an of a enslaved nation that did not supposedly have a military where Napoleon sent ship after ship and they were able to defeat Napoleon. The only other defeat Napoleon Bonaparte had was in Waterloo, which was his final battle. I love that. So this, is, this is important. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I read, and I, I saw different numbers, but for the reparations that they were paid over 120 years and amounted to up to 80% of Haiti's budget. So during this century plus, almost all this money going to France rather than building schools, hospitals, or infrastructure. And on top of that, France demanded a 50% discount on any goods that France purchased from Haiti. So not on, not only on top of most of their budget going to France, they couldn't generate revenue right. or much because of this discount. So to, to put this all in perspective, the median annual income of a French family is 31000 and in Haiti it is $790. And Thomas Piketty, the French economist, said that France should repay at least $28 billion in to Haiti in restitution. Mm-hmm. But this is like, I mean, I could keep going because like after this happens, you know, right around the time Haiti is almost done with their quote-unquote debt to France, the U.S. invades, takes over Haiti's finances and uh, all of their gold reserves. So when so when Brooks writes, which I think brings us back to the relevance of the 2010 earthquake, but when Brooks writes, on October 17th, 1989, a major earthquake with a magnitude of 7.0 struck the Bay Area in North, Northern California. 
63 people were killed. This week, a major earthquake, also measuring a magnitude of 7.0, struck near Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and the Red Cross at that time estimated 45 to 50,000 people have died, and we now know it's hundreds of thousands of people. And then he goes on to suggest that it's the shoddy construction and infrastructure that falls on Haiti's shoulders. And I guess I just don't know what is more disturbing, that he could write this in either willful ignorance or under sort of an incurious ignorance, and that no one at the New York Times um, either knows or cares enough to hold the article to sort of an intellectual standard, right. or that the article was was received by many as brave for being willing to speak um, about the culture of poverty um, when a lot of people felt like they thought it but wouldn't say it. Right. And I wondered about this this immensity of ignorance that you are writing into mm-hmm. um, and must be hovering, <laughs> hovering yeah, as I mean- you write. I mean, I've been I've been um, immensely heartened and maybe even relieved at the you know the pre pre pub reception of a novel. Um, at the same time, as I'm aware that some readers are restrained in their acceptance of the vision of Haiti that I paint in this novel, because it humanizes Haitians in a way that they're not ready to accept. And I don't even know that they're aware that their judgment is clouded. You know, I hope that the novel is very good, but I'm not trying to um, make claims on behalf of the writing. But what I'm trying to say is that in an effort to, to humanize, you know, Haitian lives, there are some readers who are unable to see past what Brooks and others, you know, depict of Haiti because I think it satisfies a kind of notion about the poor, not only in places like Haiti, but also in the United States. And especially if those individuals are raised, it's a very comfortable position to take um, if you don't want to change superstructures or the ways in which a society is organized, or especially from the vantage vantage point of the United States or Americans, if you want to convince yourself that America has achieved a gold standard, which we know from you know, uh, the Black Lives uh, Movement in the last few years, America has not achieved. So um, I'm forgetting your question, David, at this point. (laughs) Oh, no, it was just about writing into ignorance. It's an ignorance that seems to be so um, pervasive that it's both the writer and the readership and the editorial. So, so maybe one way I could um, speak to what you're saying is that, and I was thinking back to the Biden quote that you provided at the, at the opening of, of this part of our conversation, that, you know, that Haiti wouldn't matter much. Um, and my argument, and I think the argument of many others, uh, and I'm thinking of a, an older book that I think was published in the late 1990s by Randall Robinson, uh, the activist, which was on behalf of like a defense of Haiti, uh, but there, there are others. Uh, I think uh, Paul Farmer also wrote a book that I often refer people to that many people have forgotten that he wrote, I think was published in 1994, you know, which is the same year as your Biden quote, which is called The Uses of Haiti, which was uh, not like his academic work, AIDS and Accusation, but really laid out, you know, for the layperson, what is this history, you know, uh, of Haiti and why, you know, 
I really like the title, the uses of Haiti, because this idea that Haiti wouldn't matter much uh, doesn't hold water. I do ask myself, you know, often, why is a country of around 9 billion people that is on half an island, uh, 9 million, excuse me, uh, on half an island being held hostage, you know, to this degree, because that's how I view the economic and political situation in Haiti, that they're being held hostage to larger powers, international powers. And it is difficult to, to say, but I, but I, I must always come down to that Haiti does have its uses and they are extractive and they are ideological. Um, extractive in the sense that, you know, you're talking about the income, the relative income of the French, but we could, we could throw in the relative income of, a, of the, an average American family, as opposed to a Haitian family, many of whom actually do not survive on currency, right? They, they barter to make a living and to get by. Um, and still manage, you know, to put food on the table of their children and get their kids to school and so forth. Um, you know, we have to think very deeply about um, the effects of intervention in, the, in this particular island and why it is a str of strategic use to others. So, for example, uh, France will say, and I think the last president to a uh, French president to have made a kind of you know, a comment like this, I think it was Mitterrand, I, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but when asked uh, what is, you know, should Haiti, you know, uh, be, are they owed reparations from France? The response was, and still is, that Haiti was never a colony of France, so they're owed nothing. Now, technically, that is true. Haiti, <laughs> you know, created by the formerly enslaved was never a colony of France because it was Saint-Domingue when it was a colony. And so this is a kind of semantic way of getting out of, of, the, of the issue uh, and not thinking about, you know, all the numbers that you just, that you just gave us. Um, and on the American side, and I discovered more of this when I lived in Louisiana, um, you know, where I had been told before I arrived there, there's a, a large Haitian community and historical retention. And I was dismayed to find out that a great deal of the retention was highly negative from all quarters because people didn't distinguish between the French plantation owners who fled the revolution because they did not accept the revolution and brought, uh, you know, uh, enslaved Africans with them into the Louisiana context and continued, you know, barbarous ways. Um, and the Haitians who had inspired the revolution and were working at creating their nation, who they were now then being lumped with as being barbaric. So that I learned, for example, that uh, uh, during a period of the, of the revolution, whenever there were um, uh, enslaved African-Americans in Louisiana who fomented revolt um, in one particular instance across these plantations from, you know, in the Mississippi Riverbed, if you've seen the old maps, from Baton Rouge, which is where I was living, to New Orleans, those individuals were killed, they were beheaded, and their heads put on posts all the way down the river so that other enslaved people could see what would happen to you if you revolted. So, and of course, the fear of revolt had to do with losing all of the, uh, the reapings of a labor 
of, of Africans and African-Americans in this region. And so, and then if we go back to some of the statistics that you also, you also provided, um, you know, citizens of France during the period of the, of the colony of Saint-Domingue derived a great deal of money directly or indirectly from this colony, whether they were directly involved in the plantation system or making goods from what was extracted, for example, sugar, right? Um, so, and then now moving very quickly into uh, the 2000s, when Aristide in his second term was removed in 2004, you know, whatever, you know, uh, your beliefs might be about Aristide's second term, because I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, con conflict around his second term. Um, it is known that he was seeking to have this indemnity repaid. And he was also seeking, you know, from France, and he was also keep seeking to raise the minimum wage in Haiti, which was refused by the United States. So why is it that uh, a people's future has to be controlled from the outside, where if I decide, for example, I mean, I'm, I am middle class, if I go back to Haiti, I have more of a chance of putting a child through school and having them uh, you know, go to university and so forth. But why should any Haitian who decides to stay in Haiti have to only imagine that the future for their children or their grandchildren is to work in a factory for a pittance, right? Be exploited and sometimes only be paid in the April that they're creating for, you know, usually American-based uh, industries and not have any hope to learn a trade, uh, to go to college, you know, whatever the case may be. So the parallels are false, you know, to, to, to you know, just leave it at that in terms of the Brooks article, the parallels are false and, and they're purposefully, it seems to me false because Haiti still has its uses. It still has its uses, not only in terms of extracting labor, extracting uh, mineral resources of which uh, it was discovered after the earthquake. Uh, well, it was known just before the earthquake but during the earthquake and after the earthquake, a lot of deals were made about who would own those mineral resources. And so it is a very rich country in many ways that the Haitian population itself does not have access to. But I'll add one more layer to this because what Brooks and others don't say and are unwilling to say, but I will say it, is that when you compare Haiti's cultural and artistic production alongside that of other nations in the region, it far exceeds its poverty. You know, so if you look at, you know, I have, um, I know your listeners can't see it, but I have a painting behind me, a Haitian painting. Haitian painting, for example, is very distinctive. It is copied all over the Caribbean, you know, the style, especially in the Dominican Republic. But you know a Haitian painting when you see it because it's very, very distinctive in style. Um, the music that's come out of Haiti, compact, doesn't exist in other parts of the Caribbean. Merengue is derived from Haitian rhythms as are other rhythms in Cuba and elsewhere. Um, when it comes to the literary production, even though more male writers have been published than female writers, there was a time when in the French literary tradition, Haitian writing was as valued as that coming out of, uh, out of France. You know, people were very well known all over the world. So, you know, Jacques Roumain, for example, uh, or Depest, who, not, who then went on to live in France. Um, so I, I think, and, and of course, the fact that many 
Haitian writers in particular have been writing in French and are unknown to American audiences has also uh, fueled this idea that there is no uh, merit, there is no artistic merit coming out of this country. Um, but when you realize that there is so much production and the production is coming out of people who are either impoverished or who've had to flee their country because they cannot stay there because of uh, the dictatorship or interventions or so forth, then you realize there's something not quite right with that, the, the painting that Brooke wants to paint. And I'll just end with one more point. Wouldn't matter much is very interesting to me because 90, 1994 was when uh, I was living in Nashville uh, and started writing Framing Silence in response to uh, Americans being deployed to Haiti to intervene in the country. So if it didn't matter much, why were Marines being deployed from uh, primarily from Nashville? And it was then in discovering the work of Haitian women writers who, especially the novelists, had started writing in response to uh, the U.S. occupation, right, of, of uh, 1930, uh, is ended in 1937, began in, um, I'm forgetting, 1915, uh, 1915 to 1937. I might have my days a little off here, but um, the, the first novel uh, was published in the 20s. Um, and so there is a response to the occupation from female writers. And this is when they start producing uh, novelistic accounts. And what I discovered in reading their works and in understanding more about the US occupation, because both my parents were born at the end of the, of the US occupation. So I knew more about it than the average person. Um, it turns out that Marines were deployed from the same bases that were deployed for the first US occupation. Mm -hmm. And the first U.S. occupation was 1915 to 1934, um, changed the country irrevocably in terms of race, because uh, segregation, for example, didn't exist. It was imposed uh, by, by the occupiers. Um, and things like gender discrimination uh, really didn't take hold until the occupation in, in, what I, in the literature that I've read and the accounts of what happened, how people were treated, especially women under US occupation. So a lot of what we see happening now being repeated in Haiti, we don't have to go all the way back to the plantation system and to the French uh, colonization process to understand that US intervention has also had this, uh, an effect that, that, has, that, that is about laying claim to black bodies in particular, and to redefining the contours of how people can define themselves in a nation that defied the ways in which the United States wants people of African descent to, de to define themselves. And so I think every time people hear these kinds of stereotypes, they should ask themselves maybe a different question, which is why is this being said of Haiti? And do I, when I listen to these stereotypes, hold similar stereotypes about people of African descent elsewhere, and in particular in the United States, and how are these things connected? Mm -hmm. That was a long answer, but... No, that was a great answer. I'm glad you brought up Framing Silence and also Haitian cultural production, because I want to bring this back to writing. and But I also want to stick with this question of erasure, but a different form of erasure in the sense that um, combating the erasure of women... Um, in Framing Silence, you cite a study 
from the 1980s that there were about 400 Haitian men that had been published in Haiti and only about 15 Haitian women at the time. Right. Um, and later you say that when a population is so insignificant that its existence goes undocumented, storytelling becomes a form of retrieval. Mm-hmm. In that book, you look at how Haitian women writers often write in first person and often recast national narratives as personal ones. And that fiction becomes a conduit for the historical narratives that otherwise are denied existence. In that light, you put forth the novel as a revolutionary tool and you posit that most Haitian women's literature should be read as a literature of revolution. What's interesting about this is not only that you've created this space through which scholarship can grow with the the publication of Framing Silence uh, about Haitian women's storytellers by framing their silence, but you also are are one of these storytellers. Um, You yourself are contributing to the literature itself. And I wonder if you could, I don't know if you can have this double vision about yourself, but I wondered if you could talk to us about you as you as subject within your study. Do you see, (laughs) do you see what storm, what thunder as a revolutionary tool and how do you yourself feel it is connected to or diverging from the Haitian women writers you've highlighted in your studies? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that a lot of, I'm thinking about a lot of writers who um, don't like critics. (laughs) And so, you know, being both makes it a little bit more difficult to, to, as you say, have this double vision. Um, Because I feel that having been a literary critic has really been helpful to my creativity. And I was a creative writer first. It just so happens that my Creative writing took longer to, to find its homes. Um, and I think my early criticism really responded to gaps in scholarship and moments of distress uh, in communities uh, in the sense that I wanted to create archival material for those gaps. Um, and by that, I mean, for example, safing, uh, searching for safe spaces was actually my doctoral dissertation and it responded to, uh, you know, people at the time saying that Caribbean women's writing didn't exist, even though I was publishing at the time in Canada, uh, short stories, and I knew the work of Dion Brand and Marlene Orbase Phillip and others uh, who were less known at the time, but obviously now are major figures in Caribbean literature. Um, And when I wrote Framing Silence, as I was saying to you earlier, it was in response to this intervention where I had colleagues uh, in Nashville who probably in well-meaning ways were telling me that America was going to save my nation and I didn't have the words uh, to explain to them why I didn't feel the same way. And I found, you know, my response in the work of Haitian women writers. And I was struck by the fact that they spent, those who had managed to be published spend very little time. And it's not to say that there is not aesthetic value in their work, although I do quote in Framing Silence some other scholars who felt that there was a paucity, aesthetic paucity in some of the work. Um, I was struck by the fact that these women took great, um, they took 
I would say, great chances in publishing the works that they did, because often it meant critiquing not only oppressive powers, you know, uh, colonial, formal, former col colonial powers, or in the case of somebody like Marie Chauvet in Amour, Colère, Folie, uh, Love, um, Anger, Madness, um, who were critiquing the dictatorship, so critiquing their very own or critiquing uh, complicity on behalf of the middle classes, for example, during the regime. So um, I think, you know, that is important for me, I suppose, to have entered the conversation in some way. And, and I know I've received some criticism for writing in English, and that's just an accident of, of um, it's maybe it's a generational accident and also of, of education, because uh, though French is my first language, all of my academic schooling is in English. Um, but I also, even though actually, um, there is one section of What Storm, What Thunder, but I wrote in French and then translated. Mm. Um, and, and that's uh, Richard's section or Richard's section. Um, you know, I, I understood at some point, but it was especially because Framing Silence ended with the first books by Haitian women writers writing in English. And of course that would be Edwige Dandika with uh, Breath Eyes Memory, which I think was published in 94, 95. And, uh, and Christine Dadeski, who wrote Under the Bone, uh, also in this, published also in the same year. Uh, those were the first two. Um, I also realized that it would be the only way to uh, ensure that there was a wider readership uh, and one that, that does affect Haiti's future, right? Because if we had the op-eds like the one you invoked earlier, uh, appearing in something like, like the New York Times, you're affecting whole swaths of people in a culture that has a direct effect on this island nation. So I, I did understand that writing in English would be pivotal, um, uh, especially if my work were to garner a wider audience, uh, which it looks like it's beginning to uh, with this current novel. Um, is my work revolutionary? Well, I, I can't call, I would have to wait for critics to <laughs> say that. I can only say that I, I would like to believe that I'm, I'm participating in the tradition, which is to speak back to historical moments um, as these previous Haitian women writers have done. And so all of my novels are in some way historical fiction except that I don't really speak of distant his, historic history, although there are connections in some of my previous novels uh, to, you know, to earlier periods in the history. But I'm always deriving the fiction from historical moments that I feel are, are misunderstood or maligned uh, or need reframing. So in that sense, I hope I'm in keeping with the tradition I, I, I detailed in Framing Silence. Well, well let me ask you, a similar question, but maybe more rooted into the text of of your latest novel. Uh, given both your intimate knowledge of uh, the erasure of women's voices and the way Haitian women writers have written against that, um, what were some of your considerations? Putting aside the character of Anne now, who I want to talk about later, but what were some of your considerations around how you wanted to represent the women in the book, particularly the women in the IDP camps or the internally displaced person camps post-earthquakes. Sarah, 
Sophia and Sonia. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're thinking, again, you were talking about how, you know, 12 voices isn't a lot of voices for um, millions of people affected by this earthquake. Um, right. So you have to choose what women you want to foreground and then how to foreground them and represent them. Maybe just share some of your thoughts around that process of um, how Sarah and Tiffy and, and Sonia become the uh, three of the characters in the book. Uh, so I've talked a little bit, for example, about Malou and wanting the market woman to be so central and dominant, right, in, in terms of framing the novel. Uh, I think part of the, the process for the other female characters was to really draw on what I had learned uh, during the period, you know, period just after the earthquake and, and was speaking on at the time, which had to do with the insecurity in the IDP camps and to try to find a way to not minimize uh, the, you know, the nature of that insecurity, which I have seen done by other, you know, by some um, journalists and, and, and people who've worked in Haiti for a long time, whom I, res- I'm, I respect. Uh, but I think it came as a great shock uh, to many people, uh, the level of violence against women and children. And of course, it only came out much later uh, that some of that violence uh, was perpetrated by uh, UN uh, soldiers, for example. So one of the things I sought to do was to try to figure out a way to talk about some of those issues through voices that could impart a kind of um, birds, well, I don't even wanna say bird's eye view because it's very intimate, but, it, but who could stand in for numbers of women and girls who had experienced the earthquake and but had done had experienced it in different kinds of ways and had to manage in different kinds of ways. Um, so one of the things I thought a lot about were the number of people who lost uh, children in the earthquake. And I think, you know, going back to your books op-ed, you know, I was a little shocked by the statement about um, the mistreatment of children and um, that they're left to their own by the age of nine. I don't remember the exact quote um, because I think most people who have spent some time in Haiti uh, will see that most Haitian parents put a lot of effort into getting their children you know, through school and go to inordinate uh, sacrifices you know, to make sure that there's a future for those children uh, with very little you know, because you have to get them uniforms and school books and all these things just to access education. And so um, one of the things I was thinking about, well, what, what would, and, and because of the mortality rate, uh, it is also true that um, if you're able, if you're in a poorer class and you're able to maintain a child's welfare, you know, past infancy into toddlerhood and so forth, you really invest in that child you know, because they've made it that far. And so I tried to imagine in Sarah what it would be like to, and she is uh, a more working class uh, woman, married, you know, makes a living, what it would be like to just have that snatched away from you and the kind of psychological uh, despair that might, that might, you know, be instilled. Because one of the things that, 
comes up a lot in the in you know disaster discourse, but particularly with Haiti, is uh, the the discourse of resiliency. And I was I try to think more in terms of fortitude and persistence, as opposed to resilience, because resilience presumes that whatever you throw at someone, they're just going to bounce back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was aware of numbers of people who once they survived the earthquake could not bounce back, even if they had the means to do so. And by means, I mean economic means. And so I wanted the reader to understand from a female point of view, and this is Sarah's point of view, what it might be like to lose everything you've worked so hard for, but you, but you see you know, in your children and to have that taken away from you brutally in just a few seconds, which is I think something none of us would want to imagine, but it happened. It happened to so many people. And then in um, Tafia, so Tafia and Sonia are sisters. Tafia is uh, a teenager. Um, you know, I wanted to imagine in Tafia that, that, you know, all that teenage angst, you know, that teenagers have uh, where she is just thinking about you know, being popular in school and, you know, who's going to be her best friend in high school and who she's going to date. Uh, and, and I invoked in her section uh, the soap opera, which is a real soap opera that people were watching at the time, Frivolito, and all the ways in which she tries to understand uh, class and uh, sexuality, you know, through this soap opera that everybody's talking about and other soap operas, which are mostly American, that circulate in Haiti. And, um, and so I don't, want to, I don't want to give any spoilers <laughs> to her story, yes. uh, but she does end up in an IDP camp. And then you, you, I think between Sarah and Tafia have a kind of um, different ways of seeing what it might've been like to be in those IDP camps, which became fairly permanent for many people for years. And there are still some people living in IDP camps uh, in the thousands in Pueblo Pines today. Um, so I wanted to, to give voice to what that insecurity might've felt like, but also um, how people, women in particular and girls might've tried to weather uh, that insecurity. And then in Sonia, who, who Sonia is a more um, ephemeral character um, she is, she, we don't spend a lot of time with her in the IDP camps, although we know she's there because Tafia tells us that she comes in and out. Um, but in Sonia, and Sonia is uh, a survivor of a hotel collapse, uh, and the hotel collapse was, um, you know, imagined through the collapse of a Hotel Montana, uh, which uh, was in the press quite a lot because it was the major hotel used uh, mostly by Americans and the UN and, and people who with wealth. Um, and I, I visited the Montana after it was rebuilt uh, around 2013, I think. And um, what I know of it is that ma- many people who spend time there are not necessarily of the upper classes. Um, and in my travels, I met a survivor actually of the Hotel Montana uh, collapse. And um, and so I tried to think about, uh, 
I try to, to give voice to people who we don't really think about. You know, and Sonia is a sex worker. And so a sex worker who also defines herself as M, as queer. Um, and so to try to think through, you know, to, to view the earthquake through her eyes and her hopes and the ways in which she tries to navigate this culture that already puts her on the outside. Uh, so those were some of the ways I tried to think through. And, and I know you have a question about Anne and Anne is someone who returns, but was raised in Haiti. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was reading an article in the LA Times from 2011 about the sexual violence that you, in, you referred to in the aftermath of the earthquake. And it was citing about how rape was not a major criminal offense in Haiti until 2005 due to the efforts of Haitian women. Mm -hmm. um, that prior to that, in fact, perpetrators could marry their victims mm -hmm. and not have the consequences of, of the minor infraction. But also that rape was used as a form of political repression during sure. the upheavals of 94 and 2004. So, for instance, women who opposed the military coup by General Raul Cedras or, or whose male relatives opposed the coup were systematically targeted for rape. Um, but that there was a shockwave of sexual violence that happened when all of a sudden all of these people were, were homeless and put in these internally displaced camps. Right. That the, um, the incidence in a country where the incidence was already high was 20 times higher in the IDP camps. And there were the, I mean, as you mentioned, the United Nations, um, which I want to talk about further when we talk a little bit more about aid, but also opportunistic predatory groups of men who roamed the camps in the absence of a functioning police post-earthquake. Um, in, in your University of Puget Sound lecture, which is from years ago now, you, you talked about how you write about violence against women in your nonfiction but you don't like to write about it in your fiction. Yeah. Um, but you do portray uh, sexual violence in this mm -hmm. book. And I'd be interested in hearing about your reasons before now to not, to not write it in a fictional narrative and then why you decided to write it now and, and then how you navigated writing it now in a way that you, you felt okay with writing it now. So I think what has struck me in some literature produced by minority writers more recently is that sometimes the depiction of, of, of sexual violence in particular is very explicit. And I think maybe it's because I'm also a literary critic and I teach to very young people. Um, I'm always aware that there's a kind of, I mean, Clearly, sometimes an author decides to do that because it's it has something to do with the narrative. It has something to do with the narrative unfolding or point of view in the characterization. And there's something they're doing with that exposition. But I'm also aware that it can be read as in ways that perpetuate stereotypes about groups of people, especially in a, in a culture that is of color, of the men in that culture. And, and so I have always kind of held back in depictions of, of, um, of sexual violence 
not to deny its existence, but to, in some ways, give a character a space to exist beyond that moment or that that uh, that that violence. So, in in uh, previous novels, there are moments of sexual violation, but they're never depicted. They're alluded to, but they're not depicted. And in this particular novel, I think I went a little bit further in the depictions, but I think what I tried to do was to maintain those depictions from the point of view of the person to whom it was happening. Um, and so what I was trying to do was to, and because there was a, you know, you, you gave the statistics, there was a great deal of violence and there's no denying that, it, that, it, that this took place. Um, within the culture and then eventually when others came in the culture that you know was rampant and so i wanted to find some way to speak about that without it being um well to layer it i suppose is the best way to describe it to try to have a reader understand that the levels of insecurity and collapse that that are taking place you know just in this period right after the earthquake have a longer history. And I don't know how well I manage that. It'll be up to readers to, to maybe reveal that to me. But I wanted to make it clear that this is a, this is a situation or, or a, a, a country which is in a state of collapse at so many levels at this stage. So we have gender inequity as we have all over the world, which is already present, but you also have a state with no police uh, no military to speak of. I mean, they were in the process of rebuilding, but really there, there is, you know, so it's not as if you can appeal to a higher power for protection. Um, and elsewhere, but also in this novel, this you get this in the section, Olivier's section, uh, who is Sarah's husband. Um, I try to also give a representation of something that very few uh, journalists or critics talk about you know, in terms of nonfiction or, you know, reports, which is that uh, individuals within the camps where these kinds of violence were occurring set up security for themselves. So young men organize themselves to patrol, you know, uh, because they were refusing this violence, which was happening to their mothers or sisters, maybe also their children. Um, And I wanted to make clear, but it wasn't as if this was accepted, you know, just, ah, uh, you can violate who you want. No, there was a pushback. Um, we also know that the organization, a women's organization, which had been formed in response to uh, the political violence that you spoke of, um, also, uh, you know, mobilized in the IDP camp to take people's uh, statements, to seek justice for them if it was possible, which is partly how uh, you know, some things did end up in court. And if they didn't, it was just a way of making sure that the healing process was begun by having those women and girls tell their stories, have them documented, and get them the, the correct psychological, uh, you know, support that they needed uh, for those traumas, having already lived through the, the earthquake itself. And so, um, I wanted to, to and, and you get a little bit of this in Anne's section where she participates in that taking in of information. So I wanted to give a more rounded picture of, of that state of collapse, which anywhere would occasion violence, 
but then also to demonstrate that there was a pushback, a response from within the culture saying, no, we don't accept this. And that people were also trying to help each other through those violences. Um, so I'm not sure if I've answered your question. No, you have very, very well. I, I wanted to stay just another moment with identity, silence, and erasure, particularly around women and women's narratives. Mm-hmm. At, at one point you've said that you used, you used to think that you had no identity and later realized that the holes and the silences were part of your identity, that were they were part of your culture. And, and you quoted Anzal Dua, who talks about making a home out of the cracks. Mm-hmm. And as one example of, of a silence that is also a presence. In your book, Searching for Safe Places, we learn that you are a, a descendant of Genevieve Afiba. Afiba? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Genevieve Afiba, Afiba who's, who's one of the revolutionary uh, Toussaint Louverture's sisters. And he had no direct descendants as neither of his two sons had children. So genealogists trace his descendants through his siblings, but because the whole system is based on patriarchal descent. Genevieve is only remembered in relationship to the hero of the story. We don't know if she was involved in the revolution, how she lived. Um, We know that she gave birth to nine sons and three daughters as the enslaved concubine of a French colonist whose name you bear. And this, this just made me think again of your choice to tell a polyvocal choral narrative I wondered if this was connected, I guess, if if telling a polyvocal choral narrative uh, instead of a heroic narrative um, is one way to tell a story out of the cracks or to construct an identity that is also framing a silence. That's a great question. Um, you know, when I when I made that statement, I was quite young, so I don't know if, um, <laughs> if I still agree with that. My own statement if I wasn't searching for safe spaces, I think I wrote that when I was 23. And so um, still kind of forming my identity or my sense of identity. And I think it wasn't until I wrote Framing Silence a couple of years later that I moved towards this idea of being Haitian and that being a wholeness in and of itself. But to the question of polyvocality and speaking out of spaces and gaps, um, I can't refute that. I don't know that I was thinking about it in that way. I, I don't think I can, I can refute it because it, does, it is about uh, speaking to silences or at least to the ways in which this variety of experiences or understanding of disaster and trauma might be um, weathered in very different ways and still construct a whole. So I think in that sense, there's a, there's a connection um, so just to follow up on, on the points I've just been making on polyvocality, I also wanted to talk a little bit about what I try to do with uh, POV or point of view, uh, because I have heard from some critics or reviewers with past novels uh, that there was an assumption that if I had a, a character in the first person, that that character was the protagonist of the novel. And one of the things I try to experiment with is this idea that point of view is not, is again, not about finding the hero in the story. It's about giving the character the voice that is consistent with how they might express themselves or how they might be encountered in real life. 
Um, so some characters are more intimate and some others are harder to, to reach. And that usually dictates uh, which point of view I decide to utilize uh, for a character as opposed to dear reader, this is your protagonist. You know, it's more like dear reader, this character doesn't want you to know them that well or dear reader, this character still doesn't know themselves or dear reader, this person is infatuated with themselves as you see with Richard. Uh, the water magnate. So I just wanted to say something about that because I think polyvocality actually enables a writer to do more with a novel form and more with point of view uh, than you know what is expected. And uh, hopefully readers can go along with that without trying to you know recast the novel as uh, a linear narrative that should belong to only one character. Well, I wanted to talk again about. Haiti as the cursed, uh, uniquely cursed or, un or the unique bias against Haiti in regards to the aid that happens, mm -hmm. uh, that happened after the earthquake. Because uh, I think a lot of those narratives um, that we were unpacking earlier about Haiti, um, are prejudiced against Haiti, uh, inform a lot of the narratives around the aid. Yes. An incredible... $13 billion poured into Haiti. And the fact that that didn't translate into much in the long run, that all that money didn't really um, lead to long run change mm -hmm. is that narrative is weaponized against Haiti and it's used as ammunition by those like David Brooks who say this is because there's something fundamentally wrong with the culture. Right. I, I listened to multiple economics and money podcasts about the earthquake relief that I found were super interesting. And I, and I hope you, and I, I imagine you will push back if I get things wrong here, but not only did $13 billion pour into Haiti, but thousands or perhaps tens of thousands of NGOs were set up. And the, this immense system of NGOs were used to almost entirely bypass the Haitian government under the argument that the Haitian government was too corrupt to receive the money. Right. And it's and I'm not going to argue whether, I mean, of course there's corruption in the Haitian government, but, mm -hmm. but if we think about whether that accusation holds water around corruption, we shouldn't be giving it to the Haitian government because of corruption. Many of these groups that were set up as the alternative to the corruption misallocated funds or spent them only on short-term or stopgap measures. There were people on $1,000 a day retainers to simply be on the ground as Haiti experts. The people on the ground usually didn't speak the language. The United Nations not only introduced cholera infecting 1 million people and killing 10,000 people, and the UN was not only involved in sexual assault and the exploitation of Haitian women impregnating and abandoning them without support. The UN has also actively stonewalled attempts by Haitians to receive meaningful redress for either loss of life or livelihood from either of these things. So they've, they've done a rhetorical apology, um, but they haven't done a substantive uh, redress of what happened. But I was also reading this interesting piece from Political, Politico called The Clintons Haiti Screw-Up as Told by Chelsea's Emails, 
which is interesting because the Clintons waged this very successful campaign against the negative news stories about their involvement in Haiti. So, so much so that Time Magazine called it America's compassionate invasion mm. that according to the Los Angeles Times was largely a success and that in the main newspaper in Portugal, it said it offered further proof that in critical moments of the history of mankind, the U.S. is in fact an indispensable nation. But if you remember the the controversy over Hillary Clinton's email server in the 2016 election, when that email dump happened, we received in that email dump Chelsea's private correspondences with her mom and dad and the chiefs of staff around Haiti, where she says, which was not supposed to be released, the incompetence is mind-numbing. The UN people I encountered were frequently out of touch, anachronistic in their thinking at best, and arrogant and incompetent at worst. There is no accountability in the UN system or international humanitarian system. And then it, she goes on about the weak Haitian government, which had lost buildings and staff in the da- disaster, but says that they did have something of a plan. Yet because it had failed to articulate its wishes quickly enough that foreigners rushed in with a, quote, proliferation of ad hoc efforts by the UN and international non-government organizations to, quote unquote, help. But all of this corruption makes the accusation that the money shouldn't be given directly to Haitians in Haiti because they in particular are corrupt. It seems to me like a pretty hard to defend stance. And I wondered if you could speak to this aspect since so many of your characters are in fact in IDP camps and also given that we're in the aftermath of another earthquake Mm -hmm. in Haiti now, I'd also be curious to know where you would point people to who wanted to help, who wanted to send money or supplies, or where would you clearly steer people away from sending their money and supplies? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it was really distress, distressing in the days just after the, the last earthquake to see so many people um, saying that uh, on social media that that no donations should go to Haiti because of the mismanagement. Uh, and I, I heard, I think, on NPR uh, this week that, in fact, there's been uh, not enough going in because of this fear of mismanagement. And I think one of the things that surprised me was the degree to which uh, people, even of Haitian descent, were out of touch with what to do or where to donate. I mean, I, I had set up a page uh, in just shortly after the 2010 earthquake, giving people uh, resources, like places that were known to be sound. I mean, people would probably know places like Partners in Health, uh, run by Paul Farmer's organization, uh, and you know, Doctors Without Borders does great work in Haiti. So some of the bigger NGOs people were aware of, but I tried to also list some of the smaller NGOs that had been working in Haiti for a long time, and also some NGOs that were more recent, uh, but had been founded by Haitian Canadians or Haitian Americans who knew 
what was going on on the ground. And I updated those resources throughout the years through to 2020, uh, when, you know, Haiti had had long fallen off of people's, uh, um, you know, radars. And so when the most recent earthquake happened, one of my first, first thoughts was, well, I have to update that list again because I need to reach out to um, where people are, um, you know, where there is most need, which was in the Southern Peninsula, as opposed to Port-au-Prince, because I think there were some people who, who immediately thought of organizations that were in the capital thinking, oh, okay, I'll just donate here. And there are some organizations like Focal, uh, which is a cultural arts group uh, based in, in Port-au-Prince, which are in touch with grassroots organizations throughout the Southern Peninsula because they've been doing this work for a very long time and who clearly stated, we will redistribute these funds. You know, had an action plan. If you went and still go to their website, the action plan is clear. Um, and I unfortunately had uh, a good friend who you know, whose family lost members in the recent earthquake, who is a Haitian and who also has worked a very long time with NGOs before the earthquake, the 2010 earthquake, through the 2010 earthquake. And as I was hearing about um, her family situation, you know, asked, you know, where should people be giving funds now? And of course she was not at that moment ready to provide those resources but that led me to reach out to those individuals and groups that I have been working with for you know over a decade to find out what they you know what they would suggest, and they had less. They already knew because they've been working on these issues, and also because of I think it was Hurricane Matthew a few years ago had already set up all these these circuits, um, and so I provided those on on my website as well. Uh, and I'll keep updating them, you know, as things come in. I'll po I'll point people to your website too when when I send out the show notes. Thank you. That's that I really appreciate that. Um, and and what I also do is that if I hear anything negative or if somebody tells me, well, they're not, you know, this has happened, I remove groups and you know indicate new resources. Uh, but I haven't had to do that for most of the grassroots or, or organizations that I've recommended. They have done stellar work with very little. Um, so to your, so I, I've answered the second part of your question, but to the bigger part of the question, which is what do I say uh, to people who say, well, look at all this corruption. I think statistically in terms of the 13 billion that poured into Haiti, only 1% of that money was given to the Haitian government. And most of those monies did not stay within the country. So, and this is something that's known in the aid world that there is a kind of rotating door uh, in terms of those funds uh, in the sense that they are often tied not only in terms of labor, but in terms of actual, you know, uh, you know the materials that are used, uh, for example, for rebuilding, uh, you know, homes or structure, that often the resources that are in the country are not being used, they're being shipped in from elsewhere. So maybe you collected $100,000 to rebuild the school, but instead of using materials that are in the country or labor in the country, maybe you have, you know, unfortunately, uh, people on spring break from a university go in and build uh, and then you import all the materials. Now, 
Sometimes it is necessary to import material that the country may not have, but the most successful uh, organizations were those that taught individuals within the country, you know, to, you know, reconstruct, for example, you know, taught skills that would be left there and then help in the rebuilding. Uh, for example, I, um, the, the name is slipping me right now, but there's an organization out of California uh, that has been tasked since 2010 to um, evaluate buildings, you know, the soundness of buildings. And um, I did a commemorative uh, a symposium a year ago uh, here uh, in California and invited the engineer who started that, that, um, uh, that organization to speak about their work in Haiti. And, and one of the things they talked about was the way in which they uh, have formed people on the ground in uh, certain building practices so that they don't always have to be present, so that they're building infrastructure within the country. I think the other thing that is neglected, so I also happen to have in, on my mother's side a number of engineers who stayed in, who, one of whom left Haiti and you know, worked in Morocco and, and uh, other areas, but you know, returned to Haiti and lived there most of his life, and another who uh, was formed in, in the United States, but then did only built in Haiti, none of their buildings fell. So there is also a, a, a misapprehension around uh, the professional classes in Haiti, but there's no knowledge there. There are engineers in Haiti, there are architects, there are physicians. Uh, and whenever those individuals were given the opportunity to participate and uh, be part of uh, efforts, rescue efforts, healing efforts, building efforts, those efforts were successful because they know more about their own country than the people coming from the outside. Uh, and often also have to use stopgap measures, right? Especially uh, in terms of physicians when there aren't certain resources available uh, that they know will work in situations of, of distress. Um, so what we're really talking about, I mean, when we talk about corruption, I've heard scholars who work in this area talk more eloquently about this than I, especially in terms of, because um, I did a lot of research for another book on Rwanda, because it, it was inspired partly by Raoul Peck's film, uh, Sometimes in April. Uh, and, I, and I did visit Rwanda on the way to a conference in South Africa and, and visited you know, women's cooperatives and so forth. And I read a lot of scholarship by, by Rwandan scholars who had uh, been children in the genocide, but then became scholars and who you know, talked about the ways in which we don't talk about the criminality, if we want to talk, you know, if we're more extreme in our language, or the corruption of the very entities that have created the kind of snowball effect of, of you know, in post-colonialism that, that result in impoverishment or, uh, you know, dictatorships and so forth. Uh, and that we really need to think about the kind of corruption that comes from aid structures that, and, and this is, this is my own thinking on this, aid structures that are not designed to um, not only rehabilitate or uh, you know, remunerate for, for past losses, but, but are designed only to maintain a certain threshold of poverty or uh, you know, ability to, to sustain a country so that it can still be held 
to standards that are below what it what it deserves, because that that for me has been the most shocking. And I was involved, uh, you know, a little bit with um, uh, aid work in terms of uh, trying to figure out uh, how to get funding for for some for some groups within Haiti, but also elsewhere in the world. And one of the things I learned, I learned a lot about law. I learned a lot about how uh, the law works in the United States in particular, how it governs NGOs and how they can or cannot expand money. And once you learn more about uh, you know, the legal structure of aid systems, you realize they are, you know, in terms of philanthropy more largely, they are not designed to assist groups of people, individuals or nations to become equal participants in their in their lives or in their futures, if you know, um, and maybe I could end on on this point. Um, some time ago, I I wrote an essay or gave a talk on the Marshall Plan in Haiti because during this period, 2010, 2011, and it actually I think it came up again this summer. There was a lot of conversation about a mar you know designing a Marshall Plan for Haiti. Now, you know. <laughs> being born in Haiti, being raised in Canada, I wasn't sure what the Marshall Plan was, and I'm not a historian. Um, so I did the research. What was the Marshall Plan? How was it designed? You know, why are people talking about a Marshall Plan for Haiti? Now, if you think about what we've talked about earlier in this conversation, in terms of the indemnity, in terms of uh, the US occupation, there's an argument to be made for a Marshall Plan in if you believe in uh, reparations. If you don't believe in reparations, then it's very difficult to talk about a Marshall Plan. If still you believe in the Marshall Plan, you know, as it was designed for Europe as a way to bolster, you know, nations who that had been uh, really economically decimated by World War II and certain populations and capitals through that process, then you're talking about a reallocation of resources that allows a nation to function and participate in uh, a productive uh, exchange with other nations. And I remember as I was doing that research and thinking through well, what is meant here, I realized a Marshall Plan for Haiti cannot work because the reason the Marshall Plan in Europe worked was because there was an agreement on the equality of the citizens of those countries with those countries that were designing the Marshall Plan on their behalf. Right. That, that is the difference. If you don't believe that a nation is equal to you, has equal value, then you cannot you know, do the work you need to do. And unfortunately, I think aid structures, as benevolent as they seem, and as you know, in the same way that we want to believe that aid structures are really assisting people, there's a degree to which they are hamstringed uh, by these legal apparatus and, and so forth, but also uh, are intimately tied to belief systems, ideological belief systems that I think are still tethered to colonial belief systems that don't require that those who provide aid believe that their recipients not only are worthy of it, you know, that they deserve it, but that they are as deserving as the people who provide it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do try to, to speak to that to some degree in the novel by, you know, with one character, Olivier, who is an accountant and, rise, and tries to calculate why 
And, and at the time that he's thinking about this is shortly after the earthquakes. And there was a lot of money pouring in just within months. He's trying to calculate where is this money going and why isn't he seeing it? You're kind of reading my mind because what I was hoping you would do next is read a section from Olivier. And partially because of this, because of the content, but also I think tonally and syntactically and everything, he's a very different voice than the other nine. So this is uh, from Olivier's section, uh, March 2010. As soon as I arrive in the rocky field of Camp Cocasse, I find that shelter turns out to mean a doghouse smaller than the shithole tent I had to leave my wife and son in, in Port-au-Prince, in the market turned into a displaced person's camp below the cathedral. The shack has got a metal corrugated roof as hot as hell and no running water. There's a water truck that comes through once a week, but that's about it. The truck rumbles through at high speed, so fast that children and goats have to be snatched quickly out of the way to keep them from being run over. A donkey was killed that way fast. The first day, the driver snaps its neck and the camp dwellers roasted the carcass over an improvised pit. There was fresh food for several days that time, but no one wants to end up a dead donkey. We still have to make a run for it to piss or crap in holes after the porter potties fill up and no one has the stomach to empty them, not even the bayaku. We have to both save ourselves and clean up our own shit. Can't pass that on like we might have before. There's no school. The camp dwellers will have to organize that for ourselves too. Food rations are a usual blanched Arkansas rice we've been eating for years and freeze-dried packets of gritty material reconstituted with boiling water that we pretend is edible. The hygiene kit is made for people who have nothing more to treat than paper cuts, some squares of cleansers of glycerin to help with healing, some small bandages of different sizes, all in a waterproof box in case we get rained on, and we will. Nothing for people with cigar cut amputations or crushed extremities or who have their heads bashed in from bricks falling on them. Nothing for someone in the state that my son is in. He would have to be nearly healed to come out this way. And when I left, it didn't look like he was going to make it. From the camp, the hospital is as far as the capital. There's no way he would survive the trip. All that can be done is to fight off infection, hope he survives. In the meantime, I'm here for the work to make money, or this is what I tell myself. In Camp Cocasse, we're 5,000 souls in the arid desert. Soon, when words get out about the factory that's being planned out this way, there will be thousands upon thousands more. But now it's just us out in the middle of nowhere with no running water, no electricity. It's dark at night, much darker than in the city. I can see the stars up above clearly. Fat lot of good that does me Fuck the stars and fuck the US of A relief services. I never even got my $50 after I was shown to the door of my new lodgings, a shit house in a long row of dog houses. They smiled when they dumped me in the camp as if I should be grateful. The only cheerful aspect of the dwellings is that they're bright white instead of a drab institutional gray of the tarps being handed out in the capital, tarp stamped, a gift from the American people, or alternatively, in association with the Republic of Ireland. The Irish own the tele telecommunications in Haiti. They don't have to pick potatoes or anything else anymore. I wanted to buy a franchise a few years ago. We never did it. 
Would we be elsewhere had we done that? Would we be on a plane heading out to Ireland now? The dwellings are so white that it seems that perhaps the people who had them built had imagined that they were creating a colony on the moon or on Mars. We are a colony, that's for sure, a petri dish. Welcome to Camp Cocasse, gateway to their intergalactic medieval future. We've been listening to Miriam Chancy read from What Storm, What Thunder. In the talk that I referenced earlier that you gave about Haiti in relation to Latin American and Latin American studies, you were talking about how Haiti is presented with two options, omission or submission. And you've talked about how Haiti has taken its omission and its unique story of sovereignty and revolution with both a sense of pride and an immense amount of cultural production, that it has a deep sense of cultural identity despite all of the um, ways it has been omitted. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are other Haitians who argue that submitting to the view of what others have of it, of capitulating to the world at large, is, is the best way forward, with some Haitians wanting Haiti to become a French department or to become like Puerto Rico, um, to be lifted out of its situation through its giving up of its sovereignty. And you yourself in that talk were wondering if there was a third way. And, and if if we think back to the the market woman Malu, the matriarch in glue of the book, and then her son Richard, who left Haiti, perhaps he's an example of the submission camp in the sense that he's fully embraced the privatization of water and wants to sell it back to his own people to seem like he's a savior, but really to enrich himself. But his daughter, Malu's granddaughter, Anne, which makes me think of when you were talking about the engineers on the ground who do have the knowledge to to build buildings better than the Irish aid organization that builds one that isn't meant to withstand anything. Um, the granddaughter of Malu, Anne, is an architect in Rwanda who's coming home. And I wonder if she represents a, a, an unnamed third way. So I was hoping maybe in the context of omission, submission, and, and something else, um, if you could talk about Anne. Yeah, I was thinking um, that Richard is, is a capitalist. Um, so Richard is in some ways no longer Haitian, right? In, in terms of his affiliations, he returns to Haiti and, and has an epiphany about, about his trajectory. Um, but I think he might not fit in either of those poles because he hasn't been thinking about Haiti for so long. Um, In terms of Anne, so Anne is someone who indirectly benefits from Richard's generosity because he pays for her schooling through to college and and beyond, um, but doesn't have a relationship with her. So she's grounded in a Haitian consciousness and she's grounded by Malou. And, um, you know, and she has a vision of the possible, which is why she is working with an NGO as an architect, even though it's not in Haiti at the time. Um, and part of her storyline is based on a, on a real competition that did take place where there was, a, I believe, a global competition for the rebuilding of uh, our Notre Dame Cathedral, the major cathedral in in Haiti, which was 
destroyed for the most part in the earthquake, 2010 earthquake. And um, and I and and the competition was not won by Haitian, and it wasn't limited to Haitian architects. And I can't say that the presumption was that there were no Haitian architects, but it, the question did cross my mind, given that I have engineers in my family. Um, and so, yeah, and does represent a third way and a third way that has been activated by those organizations we spoke of, of earlier who are working alongside and with Haitians and sometimes are actually designed by Haitians themselves who know their country best. Um, and at the same time, I wanna be clear to say that I don't presume because this has also been invoked uh, you know, this summer and I'm sure prior, uh, it was invoked actually, uh, especially um, in the early 2000s. I don't believe that, that it is that it is necessarily up to members of the Haitian diaspora, uh, even though you know remittances from the diaspora really sustain a large part of the population, um, that that diasporic individuals should impose themselves uh, on the on the on the on on Haiti, and Anne is is not diasporic in this sense, right? She is from Haiti. She was raised there, born there, raised there. Uh, and has intimate ties to the country. And so I think what I was imagining through her was what would happen if there was an investment, like there was an investment in her, even though from her father's part, it was a kind of ego investment, right? It, he wasn't doing it with this idea of rebuilding Haiti. He was doing it because he had pride in the fact that he had created this person and wanted to see her succeed, but not with any particular vision in mind that this was for a better Haiti. Um, but she benefits from that, uh, from, you know, that uh, investment of resources and paired with the knowledge of someone like Malou, it does, I think, represent a kind of future where there, if there could be a, a connection between the, you know, proper allocation of resources in infrastructure like the educational system, uh, nutrition, et cetera, uh, the, the next generations of Haitians would be able to not only invest in their own country, but create the country with, it, with their own vision in mind. And this is why she participates in that competition thinking, well, I probably won't, you know, probably won't win and that in reality is what happened. I don't know if Haitian architects participated in not, or not, uh, but this is where fiction can help us imagine other futures. Um, it gives her a purpose, an outlet, and a possibility um, that I think exists for, for a number of Haitians who want to and remain in Haiti uh, because they have such a belief in, in the, not only the beauty of a country, but its potential, uh, but do so often at great risk and um, at great sacrifice. Keeping in mind this notion of, of creating a vision on one's own terms, on Facebook, when you were talking about your second novel, The Scorpion's Claw, that takes place after the fall of the Duvalier regime in the early 90s, you say, these days I've begun to wonder if all of my novels are simultaneously eulogy and love letter, 
if all of it is grief processing to continue the work of sustaining hope. And I wondered about this grief processing in the to continue to sustain hope in relation to something else you engage in your most recent book of scholarship, and that is the Laku or Yard Consciousness. And, and when I think about the spaces and structures created by these thousands of NGOs and the, and the UN, which aren't built to endure, let alone thrive, um, and perhaps most notoriously the half billion dollars collected by the Red Cross that translated into the building of six permanent structures. Um, and then thinking about our returning Haitian architect, Anne, mm-hmm. and the ways she might imagine a different future Haiti, I wonder if you could speak to Laku consciousness, which you describe in autochthonomies as a place where ritualized patterns are rehearsed and repeated, but which is not a lost home, but a constant reconceptualization of home, a space of reconfiguration. Yeah. So my thought on that is that uh, because I'm thinking of the quote you started with in terms of my reflection on Scorpion's Claw through to uh, the current novel. And one of the things that I, you know, I, I had thought through when I made that statement was um, the degree to which each of the novels speaks to a particular period where there was a kind of, both for myself and I'm sure for other Haitians, a kind of coming to terms with a period that was over. Like in the case of the Duvalier regime, of course, celebrated and um, moved through in a way that then also had to reconfigure the society. Uh, You know, not only in terms of whether or not people could trust each other, because there was a lot of distrust through to the Vodou circles that was created through the regime, but also how people would position themselves uh, in terms of class, uh, especially in the ways that the regime sort of solidified or made rigid uh, certain social lines, class lines, along class lines. And then, you know, when I started working on the novel in 2013, I think the other thing that happened was that having been back in the country several times after the earthquake, there was a point at which as uh, rebuilding took place, but rebuilding uh, took place in ways that didn't take into consideration the most vulnerable population. So uh, NGOs were building, you know, four-star hotels and this kind of thing. Um, I realized that the country I had known, especially as a child, didn't look, didn't, wasn't recognizable to me anymore. And so this is not just in terms of, you know, um, the landmarks that were lost, like the, you know, uh, our, the equivalent to our White House or the cathedral, uh, remnants of which, uh, at least for the cathedral, are still there. There's also a sense of that the rebuilding just completely changed the face, at least the outward looking face of certain neighborhoods in ways that were very disconcerting, especially when one, if one has a consciousness of, you know, reaching class equity, uh, disturbingly did not respond to the greatest need. So 
Laku consciousness, as I talked about it in autochthonomies, has to do with a principle that is very Haitian, although I applied it to texts by people of African descent who are not necessarily Haitian, has to do with this concept of a, of a yard, which goes back to African societies from which many Caribbean societies originate. And the idea that family groups, kinship, kinship groups, and then eventually spiritual groups would use the formation of the circle of a village yard as a means to gather. And this brings us back to our conversation about Bois and the gathering that took place in the clearing in the woods uh, was a way for people to integrate their beliefs, but also to exchange. Uh, and, you know, in the Anglophone Caribbean, some yard systems, for example, in Trinidad are uh, created around music, right? Or created around uh, rituals that have to do with carnival or, or so forth. But the yard conceptually really has to do with the preservation of cultural lifelines as well as spiritual ones. And the argument I made in autochthonomies, and I'm getting to the fiction, uh, had to do with this idea that some of these spaces now are virtual in the sense that one doesn't necessarily have to be in the home place to be actively participating in Laku consciousness because Laku consciousness has to do with staying true to what has gone on before. And my argument was of course, that what has gone on before predates the colonial moment. And we know this to be true in terms of uh, retention that has to do you know, with music or the arts and, and obviously with historical memory and spiritual memory. And so one of the ways that I think of, one of the ways I see my novels is that they're not only a grief process around my own individual losses vis-a-vis -vis Haiti, but they are my way of participating in Laku consciousness and participating in the preservation of culture. And not just in terms of invoking, you know, voodoo at different junctures in What's Wrong With Thunder and other places in the fiction, but in being true to what I know is still present within the culture. And my best way of verifying that I'm doing, that I'm not only accurate, but I'm being faithful to that, is that a number of Haitian readers or, you know, Haitians who will come to readings who are much older than I am, will confirm, interestingly, both their skepticism that I'm able to participate in the culture having lived outside of Haiti for, for at this point, much of my life, and then affirm that I got it right. You know, uh, I remember reading from Spirit of Haiti many years ago, actually here in California, before I moved here many, many years ago. And a Haitian man in the audience, who was probably at that time 20 years older than I was, I was probably in my 30s, um, said, um, you know, I read a passage from the novel, which was in an elderly women's, uh, or represented an elderly woman. And he said, you know, I'm really, I'm really surprised because you described my grandmother's house. How can you describe my grandmother's house if you've lived outside of Haiti for so long? So all I can say is, you know, I don't know, it's, it's I mean, so uh, 
you know, I, I both participate in Bulaku and also inform myself uh, because part of a work of being a writer, I think not only for myself, but most writers is to do research. So I'm also researching different aspects of those things I want to reflect to make sure that, that I'm being accurate. But I do think there is a spiritual element that is undeniable in the process. And, um, and that at least confirms for me that I'm participating in Laku consciousness, even if I never uh, return to Haiti to live. Well, as a, as a final question, I was hoping maybe we could touch on the title, um, which both comes from Revelations, but also from a, a Frederick Douglass quote that I feel like when you're talking about grief processing and sustaining hope, it feels like it's speaking into sort of a, a never-ending impossible moment, but also somehow at the same time flipping the terms and suggesting possibility for perhaps a different future. Um, could, could you, maybe if you could read that epigraph by Frederick Douglass and, then, and maybe then talk about um, some of what goes into the title for you. Yeah, so this is from Frederick Douglass uh, in 1852. And I believe the essay comes from is what, uh, what to the slave is July 4th. I'm, I'm not getting the title completely right, but it was talking about uh, July 4th and its meaning for, for enslaved, enslaved African-Americans. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind and the earthquake. Uh, and then revelations, there, there is a language around the earthquake and thunder, you know, raining down upon the people. Um, you know, there's a few different ways to think about this. I mean, it took a, a, some time to arrive at a title for the novel. Uh, the working title was Doos 12. Um, and I really wanted to stay with that. Uh, but I was informed that no one in the United States would think of it as Doos. <laughs> and so uh, was moved away from it, even though in my heart, I think it remains, you know, mm. dues. Um, and also because in the United States, 12 uh, can mean the police. And so it might have thrown off uh, readers. Yeah, there's nothing about police in here. Um, and so we, we settled on what storm, what thunder, partly because it's a kind of understated title but it still speaks to the natural, you know, the natural part of a disaster. And the Douglas quote behind it is the fact that I'm a Baldwin scholar as well. And, you know, the way in which he invokes the idea of a fire next time, um, no more water, the fire next time, which is a kind of similar invocation as Douglas here saying that we need something that will shape a nation to its core. And this is written before the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Uh, and free the people, free the enslaved in the United States. So there's also a touch of irony uh, in using that epigraph, 
because of course I don't mean to say that um, something like the earthquake was necessary, right? What I mean to say is that the earthquake in and of itself, and I'm speaking of a 2010 earthquake, even as you know, Haitians struggle today with the earthquake of August 14th of this year, what I mean to say is that an event like this one reveals, you know, bears down to the bone what really needs to happen moving forward. It reveals the infrastructural fragility. It reveals if one wants to know, going back to our, conver- our Brooks conversation, a very long history of neglect, of omission, and of submission. And so the Douglas quote for me enables me to make readers think about why we should care about a nation that is rocked like this to the core in the way that Douglas felt that American society needed to be shaken to the core. And it enables us to think about what our responsibilities are like in terms of a, of a humanity to others who undergo, you know, tragic circumstances that are not of their own doing. So one of my thoughts has been, and it, and it, and it is sort of coalesced around thinking about the aid uh, questions that we talked about earlier, because I often, you know, have wondered previous to the, to the 2010 earthquake, you know, why? must a nation like Haiti, why must the average Haitian suffer so much when so many Haitians are working from daybreak to sundown, you know, to eke out a living and survive? Why this level of suffering? And one of the conclusions I come to is that it's not for them, right? That those of us who are witnessing this suffering have a responsibility and that is that is the social contract, you know, beyond national borders, that is the social contract. How do we react to the despair that we see beyond ourselves? And how do we not only contribute to, but live up to the humanity that we claim for ourselves? uh, And especially in the United States that we claim, that various people claim on behalf of America. And so that's that's why the Douglas quote is there. And then of course, uh, the Revelations quote, I think, cements it all the more, you know, when you get to that part of a, of the, of a novel in Didier's section, which is to, you know, if you think in biblical terms, if you think in, you know, I'm not going to get that word. Apocalyptic. uh, Apocalyptic terms. Thank you. um, That you, that one has to really think about what the message is here, not for Haitians, but for us. For those who witness from afar. Yeah. Thank you so much for today, Miriam. Thank you, David. Thank you for the conversation. And uh, yeah, I thank you for, for reaching out and for uh, giving me a space to talk about this. And I hope uh, that readers will, will read What Storm What Thunder. I'm confident they will. We've been talking today to Miriam Chancy about her latest book. What Storm, What Thunder from Tin House. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Miriam Chancy's work can be found at miriamchancy.com. Also, when you go to her website and click on Haiti Relief Funds, once you're there, you will find Miriam's frequently updated page of responsible and effective organizations where you can donate to post-earthquake relief at a time when, because of the biases we discussed today against Haiti, they are not receiving as much funds as they hoped. So head over to miriamchancy.com, both to explore Miriam's creative and scholarly work and to find meaningful ways to support Haiti. If you enjoy what you've heard today, also consider becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers. There are many possible benefits, from rare collectibles from past guests, to access to the bonus audio, which this week is Chancy teaching us from Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out more about becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 